Let me be straight with you. This is a radio commercial for three small business insurance. The policy has no fine print. It's clear what's covered. So while you can't see the following scene, just know that this pet store is protected by three. Joe, did you leave the snake tank open? Look, I don't want to point fingers, but yes. It's biting me. Sorry, sir. I'm calling my lawyer. They're going to need some help with this mess. Luckily, they have three. No fine print, just exceptional coverage. Three is a product of Berkshire Hathaway Direct Insurance Company. Three, no nonsense, just common sense. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold Golden and Gregory. Welcome to Energy Matters, a show about how you can save money on your utility bills, use technology wisely, and live a more sustainable lifestyle. Here's your host, veteran energy regulator and clean energy expert, Commissioner Tim Eccles. Thank you, Scott Slade. It's always great to be saving money on your power bill, to use technology wisely, and to live a more sustainable life. Hey, I'm in one of my favorite places uh, in all the world, Jekyll Island, Georgia, and I'm here with my friend Kevin Udale, and Kevin uh, spends spends his days and nights selling this island and all that has to offer. Kevin, welcome to Energy Matters. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Kevin, uh, you know, there's many places along the Atlantic, Atlantic coast that people can stop and spend some time. But Jekyll is so unique. As you talk to people, whether it's, you know, individuals or companies that are thinking about coming here for cor- corporate gatherings or conventions, what do, you, what do you tell them? How do you pitch Jekyll Island? Well, the larger groups, we have maybe 90 conferences annually, and a lot of those are Georgia-based. And it's probably the only place where when you're when you're here you sort of own the island when you when you bring a thousand people or 1500 people or 800 people everybody you see everywhere they're having fun they're at summer waves in the summer or they're on the beach or in the historic district you see them at the turtle center so it's like the whole island is a big networking event for them and they, they have this sense that they've rented the whole island and, and it's very unique that way it's it's very special and and they really enjoy it and we have a a lot of those groups are repeat they've they've been coming back we've had plenty that have been here 30 40 years and uh you know and like the educational conference the gale conference every summer they call them the gale kids and those kids grew up coming to jekyll and they always thought oh that was just our vacation and and later in life they found out now it's because your parents were superintendents and principals so this was this was your summer vacation so it's yeah it's a very special place to sell um for again mostly the georgia groups you know the education a lot with carl vincent groups of course the um the 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 judge groups and such, um, but the biggest part is our associations, our Georgia associations, and they just love it here. Yeah. You know, it's not every place that has the history that Jekyll Island has. You think about a place like Myrtle Beach or Daytona Beach or Panama City Beach. I mean, these places are highly commercialized. Uh, you got the strip. You've got a lot of shenanigans going on. You come here and you've got this pristine beach that seems like it hardly has any people on it. Uh, and then over in the historic district, you've got all of that history that's happened from the you know, transcontinental uh, telephone call to the rich and famous uh, having been here, the Federal Reserve being created. I mean, that history in and of itself is, is pretty amazing, isn't it? It really is. When you think this was the, the, the most inaccessible island in the world, this was the single richest island in the world from, oh, let's say 1880-something to the 1940s when World War II um, kind of forced those the millionaires in the day, as they called them, off to other areas because it wasn't safe here with the, the U-boats off the, the shores. Uh, and then they ended up just uh, kind of giving up the island, and that's when the state, luckily for everybody, was able to purchase it from them. And then, you know, it's done a wonderful job for 70-plus years maintaining it and like you'd mentioned the special nature of it it's changed in designation to acreage but an easy way to look at it is 65 percent of the island can never be developed and 35 percent can be and and we're just about near that level right now so somebody that came here 40 years ago you know you often hear oh i'm sure it's different now i'm sure it's ruined like you'd mentioned another location uh and it's not the only thing that's changed is we had old locations old motels that were torn down and replaced with new ones so 
not one acre of the footprint of the developed land has been added to with over $350 million of public and private uh, construction over the last you know 10 or so years. So it's a real testament to the leadership and the board and the vision and the governors uh, that have helped keep this place exactly like it is. Just a very special, you know, um, developed just enough, I guess is a good way to put it. Hey, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Kevin Udell. Kevin, we're actually sitting out here just by the ocean, and we're we're at the Westin, uh, which is one of your premier hotels here next to the convention center. And, you know, there's a very good chance that a lot of our listeners haven't been to Jekyll in a while. I mean, there are so many choices as you go up and down the coast, but th- there's a lot of reasons to come here. I mean, just today... Uh, Kevin, my wife and I were out biking around the island, and we biked about 10 miles today. And you know, you've got that Clam Creek area over there. You've got the beautiful trails. That aspect of being out in nature is part of what you guys sell here. Uh, correct. You know, and in fact, you mentioned the bike trails and really, you know, we joke about it after all the, the fun amenities we have and the wonderful summer waves and, and 63 holes of golf. We're actually the largest public golf resort in the state. And we have plenty of groups that come here and say, oh, I don't even you had uh, golf because it's sort of tucked away in the middle of the island and they're beautiful courses. But the bike trails, we have about 20 or 22 miles of these gorgeous trails that go through the woods, along the ocean, through the ocean forest. And it's just spectacular. And you see people out all the time, families, individuals, you see the people from the groups go ahead and rent uh, a bike or two and within seconds of the convention center or this western where we are now you're you know a um, hundred miles away in this old forest area that that looks like it's never been discovered by anybody but you and your family and so within literally within seconds you can get away from uh call it the rush of jekyll even though we don't even have a, a stoplight on the island um so it's a really unique natural connection there and like you said clam creek happens to be one of my favorite areas the north end of the island is just spectacular up there. You know, if you've got a small child, maybe they've just learned to ride a bike. Um, you know, I know that there's there's a lot of concern if you were trying to bike it. And I've biked at places like Panama City Beach and other places where, you know, the sidewalk's uneven and, you know, you're, you're doing these street crossings and there's a lot of cars and there's a lot of Harley Davidson motorcycles running up and down the highway. You don't you don't have that here at Jekyll. This is a place where my little grandchild is going to be able to to bike with me and I'm going to have a lot of peace of mind about it. So it is it is an, it is an extremely family friendly island. It is. That's probably, you nailed it. I mean, that's probably the best part. It's it's the family-friendly nature, and it's the fact that you can go on these bike trails and, and take walks with your family and feel safe. Um, there's about a 1,000 full-time residents on the island, so it's not heavily uh, you know populated that way. And then we have about, uh, we're finishing up a new Marriott on the ocean just down the street from here, which, again, had another hotel on it years ago. We tore it down, and we're putting up a new one. And that will bring us to about 1,400 hotel rooms on the island. We used to have 1,500 plus hotels so we're actually lower than we used to be at our peak uh, and again nothing has been intruded on with the natural land but yeah it's very safe almost all of the bike paths are in the woods or on the ocean so you don't have to worry about your your grandkids and I have two daughters and um, they're both up there in Athens actually go dogs and uh, and they love it when they come down here and of course if you don't love hills this is a great place also I think the highest elevation on the island is about 12 feet at the airport so uh, it's pretty nice and level level bike riding you know you've got the the little red bug uh, rentals of electric i'm a big electric vehicle proponent so you've got all these electric vehicles that you can rent you've got some gas golf carts too there if 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 folks want those you've got bikes both here at the western and over in the historical district you've got the the home tour uh, that's just uh, wonderful they take you through the old cottages there uh, and it's, it's a historic home tour you've got all the the little vintage shops over there in the historic district i mean there's there's just so many different things that you can do here and if folks haven't been to jekyll in five or six years they really owe it to themselves to come back yeah and and like this year um our operation 
operations team were able to to secure a new ride from Summer Ways from another park that I think was closing. And it's this incredible new slide with like four slides right next to each other. And it'll be easy and quick. And it's a big addition to Summer Waves. So every year there seems to be another a little extra bike trail. We just um, had repaved or resurfaced uh, several miles with some um, SPLOS money that was available uh, to make it you know easier riding again. So Or like if you were here two years ago, there wouldn't have been this new Marriott under construction. And then this May, May 2021, it's going to open. So every year our meeting planners come back and they're like, oh, I didn't know you had this. Or I didn't know you had that opened and some some little thing that's new and, and a, a, you know, addition for them to do. Uh, but the core, again, is the fact that they can play the tennis or the golf or ride bikes and be with their family. Uh, we have a lot of the um, throughout the year off season, we have like cheer and gymnastic and dance groups. And being a dance dad myself, one of my daughters did a lot of that. This was the favorite location. And everybody keeps saying that, that we love coming here because it's so easy and safe. And and the, you just see the kids all over the place just having a ball on the beach. And then they run into the convention center, you know, and do their little, you know, dance or gymnastic event and come back out and, and have some fun. So it's it's very family-friendly for that type of market. You know, as we wrap up this segment, I've been uh, promoting an energy conference that I'm now going to do here on the island just ahead of the Georgia Drawdown Conference that Coastal DNR is doing. So that, that will be coming up August the 11th, 12th, and 13th. So I'm really excited to invite a lot of my energy friends to come down and kind of discover what Wendy and I have had a chance to discover here on the island. Just as we kind of finish up, what are, you know, as, as you think about what's ahead for the future of, of Jekyll Island, what are some of the things that, you know, kind of, kind of come to your mind? Um, you know, spur of the moment, I think one of the, the best parts is that here we are sitting here in 2021 doing this interview. And if we came back, God willing, in 20 years, um, it wouldn't look very different at all. It, it would still have 65% of it undeveloped. You'd still have these 10 miles of beautiful beaches from Driftwood all the way down to Glory uh, Beach on the south end. And the island naturally is moving south. It sort of creates down there on the south end, so it keeps growing out of the south end. And so the island sort of changes changes but the nature of it, it it remains the same so i that is the most exciting to me that i could have a conference at the georgia association of whatever in 20 years and these people are going to enjoy the same exact you know thing that we do right now and there you have it thank you kevin for being on energy matters today thank you so much great being with you hey this is tim eckel stick around for more great energy talk you're listening to energy matters Energy Matters would like to thank Gas South for its support of the show. Gas South has a no deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. Gas South, the difference is good. Gas South believes in the difference we can all make, like the difference in putting people first and showing that you care. For us, our difference is saving people money with our best rates and no deposit, and the difference we make in our community by taking care of our friends and neighbors and giving back 5% of our profits to help children in need. Learn more about what makes us different at GasSouth.com. Gas South. The difference is good. Logan Booker, producer of Energy Matters, here for Green Power EMC. From the suburbs to rural farming communities, Georgia is enjoying the benefits of a more sustainable future through the power of solar energy. Available from 38 of Georgia's member-owned electric membership cooperatives, or EMCs, these not-for-profit utilities are harnessing the sun's energy to bring clean, renewable, and affordable electricity to 4.2 million Georgians. For more information, visit www.greenpoweremc.com or contact your local EMC. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by Arnold, Golden, and Gregory, an AMLAW 200 law firm with 180 attorneys in Atlanta and Washington, D.C. They take a business sensibility approach when advising clients. They provide industry knowledge, attention to detail, transparency, and value to help businesses and individuals achieve their definition of success. AGG subscribes to the belief not if, but how. We thank John Gornall and all the attorneys and staff at AGG for sponsoring our show. 
This is Tim Eccles, and we are here with an on-the-road segment. I'm actually on Jekyll Island with my friend Ben Carswell, who is the Sustainability Director for Jekyll Island Authority. It's great to have you on Energy Matters today. Thanks a lot. Great to be with you, Tim. There's so many cool things going on down here uh, on Jekyll Island, from all the sand that I see being brought in, the mitigation or remediation. You can talk to us about that. The, the landfill solar that you guys have done. Uh, and, and probably a whole lot of other projects I'm unaware of, uh, including the museum, which I'm going to be going in in just a bit. So I wanted you to kind of take me through maybe the top three things to you personally that you feel like are kind of a crowning achievement of some of the things that that your team is doing uh, and why it's important and maybe some of the challenges involved. So what would you say would be number one? Wow. Well, yeah, Jekyll is um, anybody that knows Jekyll Island has, knows that we've, we've uh, been through a period of, of, uh, of change and, and, uh, and kind of rebirth um, over the past uh, 10, 15 years. Um, that all kind of started back in 2008 with the Georgia Sea Turtle Center, which was a big game changer for us. And from that point on, Jekyll Island Authority has really stepped up and, and really owned our, our stewardship mission, uh, passed a, a comprehensive conservation plan in 2011. And then I was hired on as director of conservation uh, to implement that plan and have been working hard on it ever since. So lately, uh, a lot of things going on. You mentioned the um, the uh, shoreline project, uh, which we refer to as the, the revetment project. Uh, a lot of folks around here are familiar with the commonly called the Johnson Rocks. So the, the uh, northern shoreline of Jekyll Island was armored uh, in the 1960s and 70s with granite rock. And um, o- over time, uh, portions of that uh, had become um, uh, dysfunctional and, and damaged by storms, particularly Hurricane Matthew and Hurricane Irma. And while today we, we're much more careful about our decisions to maybe armor shoreline anew, in this case you had uh, already armored shoreline that was pretty critical to protect uh, homes and not doing its job. Um, and so we, we made the decision to go ahead and, and uh, rehabilitate that structure. That's a word I haven't heard before, armored, but are we talking about, in my vernacular, a, a jetty, a rock? When, when you talk about armor, what do, what do you mean? So you can picture this as, uh, if, if you can picture a rock jetty, uh, but but more uh, parallel to the shoreline and, and built up against it. So not sticking out into the ocean, but uh, but alongside the shoreline. Uh, and, and, you know, today we were... Uh, um, with with conservation and, and environmental awareness, we're we're careful about how we we change natural shorelines and 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 harden them. Uh, and generally, a softer approach is preferred from an ecological perspective. But in this case, this structure existed, uh, and and there was really no constituency that was standing up and saying, "Hey, let's let's get rid of it." So. It doesn't do anybody any good to have a pile of rocks in the middle of the beach that's that's not doing anything. Uh, and so it was uh, in the public interest to repair the structure, and we've been working on that for several years now. Last summer, was the, uh, the rock work was completed, uh, building the structure back to its original design height and specifications. And, uh, and this summer, there's been a parade of, of sand trucks coming uh, onto the island uh, all summer long, backfilling the sand behind the rocks to uh, give it its original strength. Maybe there's listeners that they don't know the history of the island. They're, maybe they haven't been to Jekyll. Maybe they, uh, I find that a lot of folks have moved into Atlanta. They've never really enjoyed the Golden Isles. Maybe they, they go to Florida, they go to North Carolina, they go to South Carolina and vacation. But Jekyll Island itself is a state park, right? It's a, it's a very unique island in the sense that the state owns all of it. Explain how that works. Yeah, Jekyll Island is is uh, is a unique park. Sometimes we've we've uh, we've joked that it's a state park with special needs. Uh, so we're uh, unlike the uh, state parks. Most of them in Georgia are part of the state park system that's operated by Georgia Department of Natural Resources, and they do a great job. Uh, there's um, three places in Georgia that are state parks, but are set up uh, by the state with their own freestanding authorities, and that's Jekyll Island uh, and uh, Stone Mountain and Lanier Islands. 
uh, and then Jekyll. Jekyll is uh, unique in that we're um, we're expected to be financially self-sustaining. So none of our operating budget uh, comes from state tax dollars. It's generated locally from the parking fee that folks pay when they come onto the island, from revenues generated by this convention center that we're sitting in now, um, from our other amenities on the island like uh, the water park, uh, mini golf. Believe it or not, is a is a big uh, revenue generator. Our campground, um, and so all of those things and uh, um, uh, fees from residents on the island. Um, and so all those things work together to allow us to do uh, the good their work that we're doing in, in conservation and other areas. So the armoring or re-armoring, I guess, of the island is, is really done in order to protect the northern end of the island from erosion. How bad is that erosion uh, over the last number of years? Well, it depends on exactly where you are, but it's, uh, a lot of folks might be familiar with Driftwood Beach on Jekyll Island if, if, uh, if they've been here. And, and Driftwood Beach exists in, in uh, the way that it does with these um, very aesthetically beautiful uh, skeletal um, trees that are out on the beach itself. Those are trees that, that um, were growing in, you know, in modern times and, and you know, 30, 40 uh, or less years ago. Um, and the soil eroded out from underneath them. And so, uh, and that area is not armored. And, and so that condition is the result of rapid erosion, you know, uh, as, as much as a meter, uh, maybe even two meters a year. Um, and so that erosion rate would be happening uh, further south where there are homes uh, that could be threatened uh, if the revetment were not there. And so all barrier islands uh, have portions of their shoreline that are naturally erosional and accretional. Uh, and, and the area that's armored, there's natural erosion is a factor. And then there's uh, aspects of the landscape which people have modified over time, which also contribute to that. So it's complex. Let's talk about the second project uh, that that I was involved in, and that is the approval of some solar uh, from a larger perspective that we did at the commission that George, uh, the Jekyll Island Authority took advantage of and, and was able to get some solar on a part of your island that probably most folks don't even know exists, a land, an old landfill back there that you've essentially reclaimed and, and made made a great story out of. Tell us a little bit about your solar facility. Absolutely, yeah, it's a great story, and and really just uh, came together uh, with the support of a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of good folks, including uh, you all, Public Service uh, Commission, and um, and Georgia Power, and then the private sector with uh, Cherry Street Energy and, and Radiant Solar. Um, so there's a landfill on Jekyll Island. Uh, it's not an active landfill. Uh, it was uh, a, a construction and demolition debris landfill that was uh, that was closed and and retired, so to speak, uh, in the mid 1990s. And uh, part of that, it's, it's capped with a, two feet of soil. And part of that we've utilized over the years for uh, basically a vegetation debris um, collection area filled up with big trees from one side to the other after the hurricanes. Uh, but another part of it, about uh, four or five acres, um, had not been, been touched in some time and was not being utilized. And we, uh, we identified that there was an opportunity through the Ready program if we could uh, find a big enough area for at least a one uh, megawatt array um, that we could potentially see some significant uh, solar on Jekyll Island, which is something that we had been looking for to achieve for quite some time. And uh, and so this area on the landfill was perfect. You're not going to find anywhere else on Jekyll Island with our land use restrictions in, in terms of uh, there's a certain area of Jekyll Island that can be developed and, and we can't go beyond that. And so this land was already classified as developed uh, and, and you're not going to find any other revenue generating use for it. We applied, uh, Radiant Solar applied through the, the Ready program. And the project was selected by Georgia Power. We were thrilled about that, and uh, and, and the rest is history. But we're really excited to be working with uh, with with Cherry Street on uh, trying to make this a, a pollinator uh, friendly facility and experimenting with different um, different uh, uh, approaches to managing the landscape around the panels to try to get some additional conservation value uh, out of the project. You know, I guess our last topic is something also that I'm very excited about, and is something. Something I see a lot of here on Jekyll, and that is electric vehicle chargers. Yeah. And Jekyll Island recently got their first electric car 
street vehicle. You've had plenty of other electric, smaller vehicles, but you got your first uh, Ford Focus EV, and you've got a lot of you've got a lot of chargers. Yes, out in the parking lot right now. Tell us a little bit about all the chargers that you have. What drivers of EVs could expect when they get to Jekyll Island? We've been excited to be able to install a lot of chargers over the past um, two or three years. Um, uh, a lot of those were supported by Tesla. Uh, so we have uh, a fair number of Tesla-specific char- chargers out here, but also universal chargers uh, distributed all over the island. Um, we're At last count, I think we were getting close to 30 charging stations on the island, level 2 charging stations. And, uh, and so if you want to come to Jekyll and go to the beach, if you're coming to our convention center, uh, if you're staying at one of the hotels on the island, if you want to visit the historic district, you're going to have a place to plug in. And uh, I've, I've seen, since we've done that, I've seen the result in, in uh, electric, electric cars being more and more visible around the island. You know, the my co-host John Noel uh, was involved with putting solar thermal on one of the older hotels here back in the day, and that uh, that Holiday Inn is one of the few hotels in Georgia that has a European key card system that shuts off the power in some of the rooms when you pull the key out. So uh, that's that's something that I wish we could do more of, but it's a, it's, it's a great energy efficiency measure. Well, we're at the end of our time. It's been great having Ben Carswell here uh, with me at the Jekyll Island Convention Center. You've been listening to Energy Matters on the Road. Creative Solar USA is a Georgia-based turnkey installer of innovative solar panel systems. With their NABCEP certified installers, they ensure you receive the highest quality solar energy system in the industry. They're proud to work with you before, during, and after the install, blending customer demand, system capability, and expertise to provide the best service possible. Contact them today at 770-485-7438 or creativesolarusa.com. Tim Eccles for Marlin Gas Services. As the port continues to grow, more and more trucking companies are using natural gas in their trucks instead of diesel. Marlin Gas Services is helping to usher in this clean opportunity. With their specialized rigs, they create virtual pipelines with all the equipment and expertise to provide reliable, clean natural gas. Marlin Gas is the company that gas utilities, pipeline companies, and industrial facilities turn to. See MarlinGas.com for more information. This episode of Energy Matters is sponsored by BMVW Auto Sales. COVID-19 has changed everything, even buying a car. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, not only sanitizes every car, but you can buy it online and they'll trailer it to your home anywhere in Georgia and surrounding states. They've used electric cars, plug-in hybrids, and traditional hybrids. Check out the inventory at ev-hybrid.com. That's ev-hybrid.com. They have a three-day loaner period as well if you want to make sure electric works for you. Check them out at ev-hybrid.com. Hello, Commissioner. I just feel, I, I know I've done this before, sorry, but I feel it's just very important that I occasionally let you know that I really appreciate the job that you do and your commitment to solar energy and electric vehicles. It really makes me happy and the idea of our wonderful state having more and more solar just really excites me and I really love the job you're doing and since most of the time I'm kind of annoyed with politicians I think that you know when one of you does something I like I should let you know anyway thank you have a great day well Casey that's a nice voicemail and it's wonderful to hear from someone that really appreciates and acknowledges the policy decisions that that I've made or that we've made at the commission to move things forward. In this case, electric vehicles and solar, and that is something that for 10 years I've been working on this. And Casey, I talked to my colleagues around the country, and not all of them are in a position to move things forward. I, I guess because some of them are appointed, and when you're appointed by the governor, maybe you are doing things that line up with the governor's policy position. I mean, you've worked with a lot of commissions from around the country. Is Georgia's PSC different than the PUC in California or the, you know, uh, or the Virginia Corporation Commission in, in another state? 
Yeah. So, so yes, is the short answer. I mean, I think to your point and, and for our listeners to understand, um, not every public utility commission is elected. So, you know, some, as you said, Tim, are appointed by governors of the state. Um, and, and I think it's just a very few handful of states that have elected commissioners, right? You may know the number off the top of your head. Yeah. So I think 11. Uh, so 11. Yeah. You know, Georgia, South Carolina is elected by the legislature, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas has two commissions, a railroad commission and a PUC that's appointed, actually. And you get over Utah, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, um, uh, but but not a lot. Yeah. Well, and, you know, when you look at the commissions, a lot of them have very different philosophies, right, in terms of how they actually regulate the, the utilities, um, you know, you've got, uh, you know, Texas, which has its own unique uh, situation, which is very much uh, about creating a, uh, you know, kind of a, a free market and and a lot of consumer choice. And, and they're pretty, you know, open about that in terms of how they regulate. And, you know, there have been pluses and minuses to that. We've seen a minus recently. California is quite a bit more heavy handed. Um, they tend to be more top down and say, you know, utilities, you're going to do what we tell you to do. Um, and, uh, you know, then you have have other commissions that are, are kind of somewhere in between. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges that many observers see with the industry is is utility commissions that, uh, you know, are kind of perceived to do the bidding of the, the utilities that they regulate. So these, this idea of regulatory capture. Um, and, you know, Tim, I, I'm sure that you've run into that before. Kind of how do you and your colleagues think about that in, in your work since you are elected, right? You're accountable to the people. Yeah, I think my colleagues really enjoy the freedom that comes from, you know, having 10 million bosses, uh, right? So uh, knowing that, hey, I need to be responsive to folks. And I think this is what causes me to hit the trail so often, right? So uh, we just featured uh, on Energy Matters, a, you know, a, a segment from Jekyll Island as we talk with the conservation manager and the sales director. It's a state-owned asset and i was down there meeting with them um, meeting with the bryan county board of education doing the welcome to the gbi that was down there meeting with the city of statesboro i mean all of those opportunities to get out there and interact with people and try to find problems to solve right i'm interested in solving problems and if people aren't aware that the public service commission exists they don't know to call me my phone, I'm sitting here in my office now, my phone is not ringing off the hook today. Uh, so folks aren't calling. So I have to kind of get out there and present myself as a problem solver. And then people say, oh, okay, you can help me with that. And they tell me about it and, and I try to solve their problem. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I, I think, um, you know, a lot of people look at politicians and, and look to them for leadership. And I've actually been thinking a lot about this with coronavirus and, you know, this, this you know, kind of view towards leadership and that for some people, the assumption is leadership means government regulation or government, you know, mandate or whatever. And I, I think it's actually quite a bit more nuanced than that. And a lot of your work actually, you know, kind of explains that nuance, right? I mean, you're a, a huge advocate, as the, the caller said, for solar, a huge advocate for EVs. Um, you know, some of the things that you do at the commission directly impact our state's ability to invest in those technologies, EV charging and, and solar. But a lot of what you do is just connecting people with each other and, and just being a voice out there for these things that are good for the state of Georgia, right? Yeah. So in a way, I'm kind of an ambassador, right? So if right. I'm, yeah. I mean, because because I am a constitutional officer, meaning that the state constitution calls for my for my job and the governor can't just willy nilly say, oh, we don't need the commission anymore or or change that with any kind of executive order. Because I'm a constitutional officer, I do wind up getting some of those ambassador type responsibilities, right? So, uh, you know, if there's maybe I'm the 13th highest ranking person in the state. So if numbers one through 12 are busy, right, and they're not available <laughs> to do the welcome at an event, sometimes I'm just doing the welcome. I'm doing more ceremonial things. Uh, but mm -hmm. Even when you're doing ceremonial things, Casey, people wind up saying, hey, I've got a problem. 
you know, can I talk to you about it? And I mean, I was talking to the city of Statesboro. They're wanting to do electric buses. Right. So I was at Jekyll Island uh, and I was speaking at their mayor's mayor and council retreat. And they're wanting to have some electric shuttles that go from uh, from Georgia Southern, you know, around on kind of a circulator route. And they were needing me to connect them with to someone that makes an electric shuttle well we happen to know someone that does that in california so we made that connection so sometimes you know in doing these ambassador type jobs you wind up helping people solve a problem but then casey there's the the typical things that really are are just the bread and butter of what we do which is our administrative session on the first and third tuesday of every month at at 9 30 where we are actually making decisions about dockets that have been before us right so explain to our Explain to our uh, our viewers and our listeners about these dockets that appear before these regulatory a- agencies in 50 states plus territories. So so a public service commissioner is asking me to explain dockets. OK, all right. Uh, well, I'll, I'll give it my best and you can tell me where I go wrong here. So, uh, you know, public uh, service commissions or public utilities commissions are, are kind of uh, judicial in nature. Right. So um, people file cases before them. So it could be a rate case. So that's how, you know, how much you pay for energy gets decided. Uh, It could be, you know, an integrated resource plan, something we've talked about on the show before, which is how the energy gets generated. Um, It it could also be other minor matters, right? And so these are, are, they kind of go through a process where you have people that file documents in support of, sometimes against, um, to help the commissioners make a sound decision in the public interest. And this is something that every commission across the country does right and and this is all public right yeah i mean you guys stream your sessions on zoom yeah, right that's right just down below on the first floor casey we have what looks like a courtroom right and in that courtroom you've got you've got uh, an appellant and an appellee table you've got the witness booth you've got the five judges the commissioners up there you've got a, a stand for people that speak and so as we do these dockets that you've just explained there are various parties there's the utility that always has uh a, you know a, a basically a, not just an opinion but a position and something they're putting forward and then you've got Nonprofits, you know, like the Sierra Club or Georgia Interfaith Power and Light, uh, who are, quote, intervening because they are representing their own constituency, right, in their own position. And they want to be able to explain that and get it on the record. You know, everything is on the record. This is not just a town hall, right? This is our staff and everyone else going on the record with a stenographer in a permanent file. That is much like a, a, a court docket. If you see a court case on television, as a result of that, we are very deliberative. We are sitting there, we're listening, and, it's, and most of these dockets take months, sometimes half a year before we get through everything. And then after everyone has they, their say, the commissioners make the decision. Well, good. Well, coming up on our, our next segment here, uh, we're going to bring back someone that uh, listeners have heard a couple of weeks ago, Austin Gaffney, uh, who is a journalist who's done quite a bit of work over the past uh, few years on coal ash in the southeast. And we're going to be talking about her research into some of the coal ash spills that uh, have occurred, not fortunately not in Georgia, but in other neighboring states and what we've learned from those. And, and, you know, what other states like Georgia can um, can do going forward to help protect folks. And there you have it. Everything you wanted to know about the Public Service Commission, but we're afraid to ask. Hey, you can see more at PSC.GA.gov. Stick around. Casey's going to talk to Austin Gaffney, who wrote an article about the beneficial use of coal ash, not only in putting it into Portland cement, but also the rare earth elements that are that are contained in coal ash. I'm Tim Eccles. You're listening to Energy Matters. Everyone has tough times in their life. By checking the project share box at the bottom of your utility bill, you can make life a little easier for your neighbors. 
Your one, two, or five dollar checkoff is matched by the utility and then used by the Salvation Army to help folks having a tough time paying their energy bills. It's that easy. Join PSC Commissioner Tim Eccles and many others by donating via your power bills this year. See more by clicking projectshareinfo.com. And thank you. Hey, this is Tim Eccles. We talk all the time on Energy Matters about buying a used EV instead of a new one. Let someone else pay the depreciation. BMVW Auto Sales, one of our show sponsors, can fix you up. Go to their website at ev-hybrid.com to see the ever-changing inventory. BMVW has every brand, every type of EV, and they'll even let you test drive it for three days, show you how to charge it and drive it for maximum performance. That's ev-hybrid.com. EV. Hybrid.com. This segment of Energy Matters is sponsored by Hall Booth Smith. This law firm works with over 88 Fortune 500 companies, and they have offices from Brunswick to Athens, Tifton to Columbus, and of course, Atlanta. We'd like to thank Hall Booth Smith for the great work they do with school boards, hospitals, cities, and counties all over our state. See more at HallBoothSmith.com. Welcome back to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce. I'm on the road with Austin Gaffney, who has been on the show previously talking about her work researching coal ash and beneficial reuse. Austin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Casey. We're going to uh, talk to you a little bit about some of the other work that you've done um, looking at coal ash spills in the southeast. And uh, maybe for our listeners, walk us through some of the things that have been an issue that you've worked on and learned about the Kingston River and the Dan River spills. And, you know, give us the thumbnail of that and then we'll get into what you've learned through your journalism. Yeah. So I think the the way to start there is to understand how coal ash is currently stored in the U.S., which I'm sure your listeners uh, mostly get. But it is uh, a dried material that comes from burning coal and then it is often wetted and stored in ponds or unlined landfills. Um, over 90 percent, according to industry data, is stored that way. So. What happened in 2008, December 22nd, three days before Christmas in Kingston, Tennessee, is that the largest uh, fossil plant there, the Kingston Fossil Plant run by the Tennessee Valley Authority, exploded and sent over a billion gallons of this mucky wet coal ash into the Emory River, which is next to it, and then onto about 300 acres of the surrounding rural community. And so there was a cleanup that happened for that coal ash spill between 2008 and 2015. And um, what I've been reporting on is sort of the aftermath of that cleanup, because coal ash um, is not just a naturally occurring material that comes out of the earth. Once it's burned in, uh, to generate our electricity, it becomes a concentrated material with lots of things that are toxic within it. So if it's not properly handled, it can um, harm the environmental and human health of surrounding communities. So my reporting has covered what's happened to those workers since that coal ash spill happened. Yeah, so I remember when that happened and, and reading about, um, you know, the impact to wildlife along the river there, definitely not not good, right? And the fact that, um, you know, a number of workers who were involved in the cleanup had health issues subsequent to being involved. What kinds of things did you learn through your, uh, your reporting? And how have others who handle coal ash, right? We've got coal ash here in the state of Georgia that um, comes from our, our fossil plants and, and is stored in, you know, similarly, uh, some in line, some in online uh, ponds. Like what have others who deal with this uh, material learn from that experience? So I think the biggest lesson that comes from that experience is that coal ash should be properly monitored. So it's not just a substance that you can throw into a landfill and ignore, um, not only because of the toxic elements that are part of it, but because it is wet. And so it's like a really heavy substance. So what happened in Kingston is um, because of all the pressure built up against this dam, the dam exploded, essentially. Um, and that dam was monitored by engineers, but uh according to an Office of Inspector General's report, was not properly monitored. So there was red flags before it happened. So one big lesson is that if you see red flags around a coal ash pond or landfill, that those should be properly addressed to make sure that the community surrounding it are safe. And then when you clean up coal ash or coal ash spills, it should be done uh, with proper safety gear. So like we've learned all during COVID-19, you should have personal protective equipment available to you, right? Like masks um, and hand sanitizer. And same with coal ash, you should be wearing a dust mask. And uh, if you are in close contact with it, probably something like a Tyvek suit too, that covers your body and your skin. 
Kingston. And so those workers in Kingston, when they were uh, working on on cleaning up the spill, and it, it, you know, you said it was what three hundred plus acres that were impacted. I mean, it's a pretty large site. What what kind of protective equipment did they have? And and you know, after their work, what sorts of issues did they run into, um, kind of from a health perspective? So according to court records, um, they didn't have any pers- personal protective equipment besides from like you know a fluorescent safety vest, steel toed boots, those kind of things that uh, construction workers would have. Um, And that has led to a lot of different kind of health problems, according to a 2018 trial that a lot of these workers were a part of. Um, They have things like skin lesions. They have respiratory diseases. There's a slew of cancers that have affected them. Um, Since the spill happened, over 50 workers have died and hundreds more are sick with uh, kind of varying diseases. Um, But all that can be linked to coal ash. Boy, that's that's extraordinarily tragic. I, I, so I'm I'm hoping that um, to your point, you know, people have learned right that that you know folks who are involved with coal ash, whether it's just monitoring or or you know cleaning up any incidents, do have the proper equipment. Do you think, based on on what you've seen subsequently, that that's the case that that folks that have responsibility for um, these coal ash ponds that they're monitoring them to avoid situations like this, and that they're making sure that any personnel who are involved in in you know monitoring or or cleanup do have proper equipment? Um, that's a great question. So this was the nation's largest industrial disaster to date. Uh, so there's there's nothing really to compare it to in terms of the amount of workers who were there. Um, But I've talked to workers since then who work at other TVA plants and so who deal with this type of coal ash. And from talking with them, it doesn't sound like there's any additional safety precautions that have been put into place. And I would say that this uh, is more to do with utilities and utilities needing to adopt proper safety precautions um, and states needing to pass laws that would require proper safety protection for dealing with coal ash. One of the big loopholes that exist is that coal ash is not monitored as a hazardous waste. It's monitored as a non-hazardous waste, kind of like the trash you put in your garbage can in the kitchen. Um, And it's just entirely different from that. So um, it's the second largest form of waste in the U.S. And like we talked about in our previous segment, there's a ton of it. So it has to be properly dealt with. And one of those proper things is to make sure that it's being dealt with safely. Um, and in 2015, there was a law passed uh, by the Obama administration that regulated where you could put coal ash. Um, but since the Trump administration, uh, a lot of those protections uh, have been rolled back. Interesting. Yeah. So for our listeners, we'll put a a link uh, out there on Twitter to the previous show where where Austin, uh, Tim and I talked about, you know, things that you can do to properly dispose of and and ideally reuse um, uh, coal ash uh, in a way that's beneficial. But I I know, Austin, that, you know, you didn't do a lot of in-depth reporting on the Dan River spill in North Carolina. But, you know, given your um, reporting in, in Kingston, like as you looked at that, were there any kind of significant differences or changes that you saw between those two incidents? The biggest difference, I would say, is the state response. So in Tennessee, there wasn't a big change in terms of how coal ash was being dealt with. But in North Carolina, there were state laws passed that started to regulate on a state level how coal ash was being dealt with. And um, one of the people who did that at the time was Michael Reagan, who is now our new EPA director under the Biden administration. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what he does on a federal level in terms of coal ash after dealing with the cleanup of the 2014 Dan River spill and the subsequent um, lawsuits with Duke Energy. Yeah. So (laughs) you talked a bit about the workers who were impacted did you talk to anyone in the community that was impacted and kind of what was what was what did they see? What was their kind of long term, um, uh, you know, uh, response to the, the spill in Kingston? What uh, you know, what, what are the, the people who live there uh, thinking? So I, I think it's there's some different reactions at the beginning. Uh, there was a lot of trust in the Tennessee Valley Authority, which has been in the region since 1933. So people thought the cleanup was being handled responsibly. Um, but coal ash is such a fine substance that it really does just go everywhere. So there are people who would find it in their homes um, who are near the coal ash site, just like on their kitchen counter um, and on their cars, on their lawns, on their roofs. So it really, the spill 
allowed the particulate matter to really disperse. Um, And since then, there's been several lawsuits against the Tennessee Valley Authority from community members um, who sort of want some some kind of recognition that this was not handled properly and that they weren't given proper notice uh, that this was a potentially dangerous substance. Were there any economic or or health impacts to folks in the community from this bill? Not that ha- that not that I am aware of. Uh, so I mostly speak to workers. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. And some okay. of them live in the community, and some of them don't. There's over 900 in the spill, so uh, they're kind of from all over. Gotcha. And you said it was like a four-year process of of dealing with the spill. Is that right? Yeah, uh, roughly seven years, six to seven years, seven 2008 years. Okay. to 2015. Wow, that's incredible. And, you know, are they, is it kind of remediated at this point or is there kind of an underlying long-term damage to the area, uh, you know, brownfield uh, kind of designation or something like that? There's no brownfield designation. Uh, it was a super fun site, but it's currently still being used as one of TVA's four remaining uh, coal burning fire plants. So it was turned into some public parklands, actually. And there's some questions in the community about whether those parklands are safe. But it currently looks very clean, very manicured. Um, and most of the coal ash that came from the spill was actually sent to a town in Alabama called Uniontown. Um, and there's been lawsuits there about whether the coal ash is safe to be stored in their landfill. Wow. Well, Austin, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Really great to talk to you as always. Um, Really appreciate your in-depth reporting um, and and thoughtfulness on this topic. We'll link to some articles on our our Twitter feed for uh, folks who want to go read more. Um, The show is at Matters Radio on Twitter. I'm at Casey Boyce. Uh, Austin, where can folks find you if they want to learn more about you and and your work? So folks can find me on Twitter, too, at at Austin Gaffney. Um, Austin spelled with a Y. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the show. And folks, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to Energy Matters. I'm Casey Boyce. We'll be back with you next week. Energy Matters would like to thank Gas South for its support of the show. Gas South has a no deposit policy and offers some of the lowest per therm rates in the state. Use the promo code MATTERS for a special deal. Gas South, the difference is good. The electric car revolution is coming and the choices are growing. Gem cars are everywhere. You've seen these low speed electric vehicles on college campuses, downtown Atlanta streets, and resort islands like St. Simons and Jekyll. Gem cars are street legal, equipped with seatbelts, headlights, and a tag, and can operate on on roads with speed limits of 35 miles per hour or less. If you want to know more about these electric cars and trucks, six passenger shuttles, mobile repair service, or full vehicle wraps, go to gemcarservice.com. That's G-E-M, carservice.com. Tim Eccles of Energy Matters here for Solar Sun World. No doubt you've seen solar panels popping up all over the state. If you want the precision of German engineering when it comes to solar, Solar Sun World is for you. Gerd and all the folks at Solar Sun World understand the complexities of solar and how to make it work for you. From tax credits to inverters to accelerated depreciation, they'll advise you on the best path forward. And Solar Sun World now offers power purchase agreements. Find them at solarsunworld.com, solarsunworld.com. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The name your price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxwain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, price and coverage match limited by state law.